So would it be fair to call you, um, would, would all these, I would apply, a musician, a singer, songwriter, producer, record studio owner, audio engineer, Foley artist, post-production engineer and composer, and a score composer. That's, that's pretty, it's a pretty extensive uh, list of things that you do, Mr. Woods. <laughs> when you say it out well, loud. Yeah, it's, it sounds a lot more impressive than it really is. But uh, yes, thanks for bringing that all up. Yes, I have done all of those things at one point in my life, at least. Lots of that falls under the, under the uh, if you're old enough to know the song, nice work if you can get it. <laughs> Most of my listeners are definitely old enough <laughs> to know that, and a great many songs that we wouldn't remember. So, Yeah, there you go. But I should say to folks, too, that Randy obviously is, um, or maybe not obviously, but because uh, I do sort of shout out every now and again, and I have you in the episode notes, Randy does all the stings for the Tom Petty Project and composed and sort of performed the the intro, which be eternally grateful. So you've heard Randy's voice lots and you've heard his guitar playing. So this is the guy. And I thought, you know what? Get my best friend on the podcast and we'll talk music because Randy, what Randy doesn't know about music, folks, is just ain't worth knowing. <laughs> <laughs> so there you're on the spot. I, I would like to, uh, I would like to say to your, lovely listeners kevin that i'm woefully underqualified to be on a tom petty podcast i am not i'm not a tom petty nerd to the level say of uh of you kevin mm-hmm. so uh i'm sure i'm gonna learn lots about tom petty but i think though that this is you know when i sort of approach well i should tell back up a little bit when i first started the podcast i, I sort of talked to you and, and said like i'm doing this thing and i'm thinking of having people on would you want to come on the show and talk about Full Moon Fever? And he said, yeah, definitely. Because, well, we were talking about Full Moon Fever. And I said, well, come on. And he said, okay. But then I ended up doing this thing with my friend John Paulson now, uh, who does an album right with me every year. So we've sort of, we've covered Full Moon Fever, but I thought, you know what? I still want to have Randy on because I still like talking to you about music, which is what we do endlessly. And I think there's, you know, this format of me giving you eight songs that probably, you know, I think there's one on there definitely that you know, obviously. But the other seven, you might not know. It's like, okay, well, to get a, a fresh take from somebody who hasn't heard those songs before, it's always great for me because it's like, you know, when you're a huge petty head and a big nerd, it's like, well, you're so close to the music. You sometimes don't see when someone says, oh, I don't really like when they do this. You think, oh, again, okay, no, I can see that. Whereas the big hardcore fans, we just pretty much love everything you did. Right. So. So is that what you guys call yourselves? Petty heads? Petty heads. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of it because it's just like, it's like deadheads. You know, I just, it's like, oh man, we could have come up with something else, but it's petty heads and that's what it is. Yeah. Which, yeah, it just kind of reminds me of petrol heads. I mean, petrol heads. <laughs> Right. What's the great? It's the Grateful Dead, though. It's the Deadheads, right? Of course. No, I know. But so, but if you like Tom Petty and Cars, you'd be a petty petrolhead. That's (laughs) that's what I'm getting at. I'm sure they're out there, Randy. I mean, I'm not one of them, obviously. I mean, you know my my utter disdain for vehicles. I mean, they're just a means of getting from A to B, my friend. That's right. I couldn't agree more. But I mean, you. I mean, you. You a mechanic by trade, or one trade, another trade that you had in in a former life. So. Let's tell people, like, I mean, obviously, it's funny because I'm going to be asking you a bunch of questions here, Randy, now that I know the answers to, but my right. listeners don't, and I, I think they should know. Is like, where did, where did you grow up, um, and what was music like in the Woods household growing up? So I grew up mostly here in, in, in Saskatchewan, and, uh, and so I'm of, of Métis ancestry, and so, uh, and my grandfather was a Métis fiddler, and so my, my introduction to music was that, basically. Yeah, big kind of kitchen parties and, you know, grandma and grandpa and all everybody relatives getting pissed out of their skulls playing, <laughs> playing, playing Métis music, uh, Red River Jig and, and things like that, uh, which is very similar to 
what you know east coast music which you know maritime style of music yeah it's got a lot of that sort of built into it so yeah that was definitely my introduction to music and and i would say i would have to say too that my grandfather was definitely my 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 inspiration to become a musician as well and he he yes he never worked as a full-time musician uh, or anything but uh but it was certainly it was certainly what motivated his his life that's that's really all he was nah, not all he was interested in but that was his primary love in life yeah. and he could sing and he could he could dance he could play mandolin fiddle guitar uh super talented guy just yeah. never had the opportunities never had the probably the self-confidence i can't say that for sure um but yeah that, so that's and so then of course then that was my uh my uh father's uh my sorry my mother's father uh, so she, by extension, then played guitar. And so there was always music in my house. Yeah. And instruments, uh, and then? Instruments, yeah. And it just kind of came naturally. Someone just put a guitar in my my lap one day, and I, and I started playing it. And I guess I, I did take, I took some organ lessons for a few years as a, as a kid, but I, I, was, I was terrible. I never practiced. And, <laughs> and to this day, never really learned to read music, even though I do sometimes get hired to play things where i should be able to read music <laughs> but i just don't and what you do is you just figure out what the cards are and then work around them right i'm assuming so. i just I, get, I just get a yeah i just get a lead sheet with you know or uh or yeah. a campfire campfire chord chart whatever you want to call it and uh yeah and i just fill in the blanks and, and i just you know if i have to listen to it ahead i listen to it ahead just like when you send me these 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 podcasts yeah. little things I, I just i just listen to it and, and then just 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 figure it out real quick and then play it which is so funny because I know that that, you know, people who are not musical and even some people who are musical, but don't have that sort of ability to play by ear like that. That's like wizardry to some people, you know, like they just can't believe that people sit down. I posted a little clip of me playing um, the piano on our queen account for the queen podcast that we do. And there's a few people who have deep dive podcasts who are just like, Oh man, I can't believe like you call them that a doodle and you just throw that. It's like, yeah, we're just sitting down playing around bass chords. Like there's nothing. Yeah. But if you don't have that skill, or if you yeah. don't have that sort of, you know, that, that comfort level. And I think some of that does come from when you grow up in a family where people are musicians and singing and performing and playing together is just sort of, that's part of your family DNA. Then I think yeah. that sort of that confidence to be able to, to, for it to be okay to do that, that's much more natural, right? Than say, if you grew up in a family where no one plays, then it would be a little bit more, you know, you probably would be a bit more self-conscious about putting yourself out there, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um it yeah, it is funny. It was just just as you were saying that I was thinking. So when we were when I was a kid, my mom would sing, and my sister would sing, and she'd grab a harmony, and then there would just be there would be me, and and I was <laughs> puberty hadn't hit, so I could sing higher than both the the girls. <laughs> well, I would take some third harmony way way up. Yeah, and uh, and then of course, so as soon as the relatives hear you hear, hear all this three part harmony, then we had to we had to do that everywhere we went, every time we'd go somewhere, and to the point where it's like ah. Uh, Oh, I don't want to do it. <laughs> and then but he hit puberty, and then it all goes to hell. Then I was the, then I had to take the, the I had to take the bottom. <laughs> oh, I actually still got a fairly decent falsetto. So, when did you start playing guitar? Because obviously, that's your primary instrument is is guitar. Now you play bass, and you, you you know you can play keys, and you there's a lot of different anything with strings you can play. But when did you? What was your sort of your first guitar, and what was your first memories of starting? Yeah, my uh, my uncle bought me an old. Uh, uh, are, are your listeners mostly North American? Absolutely. I suppose. Okay. Yeah. So my uncle bought me an old Sears guitar that he picked up at a garage sale, a six string guitar, but right. there were only four strings on it. <laughs> and nobody thought that, that was really too much of a problem. So 
and he wired it up to uh, the great big old wooden stereo system that everybody used to have in their living rooms. Yeah. Uh, which worked pretty good because we still things were still in vinyl. So I'd put, uh, I'd put whatever we had on the record player and then just like try to play and learn to play around it. So I had that for about a year and then uh, it's right around the 15 year old neighborhood. I got my first proper electric guitar. Uh, yeah. And had taken some of those, like I said, had taken some, some organs yeah. younger than that. But that's really when I really got interested in guitar, and that's when I that's when I discovered, uh, you know, Van Halen and 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 all those kinds of things, which you and I talk about Van Halen quite a bit, and yeah, and uh, you know, uh, uh, the Blues Breaker album and stuff like that. I had a really good, really good friend that also played guitar, and so you know we would get together, and he would show me because he you know he could play, uh, yeah, he could play the solo to talk dirty to me, and right. and, and so he'd show it to me, and I would show him whatever I learned. So, uh, yeah, it was lot, lots of, lots of sharing, you know, in those early days and just, and just tons of, just tons of playing. I had a guitar in my hand all the time. Well, and that's that, you know, I mean, it's, it is cliche now, but the 10,000 hours thing, it really does hold true that you've got to put the time in. Yeah. You know, and I, but I love that, that whole sharing thing, because this is the story behind so many great artists, Lennon and McCartney, right? They would show each other licks and they say, oh, I've learned this Bo Diddley thing, or I've learned this Chuck Berry thing. And they would yeah. excitedly show each other and Tom Petty and Mike Campbell, they'd share yeah. each other. Oh, and the, you know, the thing that impressed um tom about mike was that he could play i think johnny be good was the song he's like oh this this guy can play johnny be good so you know it's that sort right. of shared experience of you know no one starts out being eddie van halen or stevie ray vaughan or brian may or tom, uh, mike <laughs> campbell they start out trying to impress their mates with the with this new lick they learned which is that's the organic beauty of i think about collaboration and, and working together as musicians you know well i was just going to add to that yeah we were we were just like those guys just <laughs> all the talent all that pesky talent didn't get in the way of our <laughs> Of our learning guitar. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, there's, there's a choice that people make at some point. Because we think, I mean, for every Eddie Van Halen, there's another guy who still pursued that thing, but never got anywhere, but also didn't get a real job and just ended up his life in ruins, right? So yeah, at some yeah. point you do have to make it, well, I've still got to feed people. And, you know, you got married fairly young, so you had to, you had to provide for your young family, right? So that changes that dynamic completely. Yeah, yeah, it did. Did it doesn't? It's funny. It's actually you bring up Chuck Berry, which I'll just I'll just do this really quickly. But I remember the very very first time. So everybody knows the you know the Chuck Berry lick, right? The ba-da-la, ba-da-la, da-da-la, da-da-la. So yeah, I would I would record myself playing a rhythm part on on the old Ghetto Blaster, and then try to play over top of it. And I remember the yeah. first time I actually did that successfully. I'm like, fucking look at me, <laughs> look at this over here, you know? Just thought it was the cat's ass. Uh, and, you know, just E A B D or you know E A D, sorry, yeah. uh, and just just move it up and down the fretboard. And that was the first soloing I'd ever done, and I was I was thoroughly excited. Yeah. By it. Well, that's you know, I mean, again, you know, we're obviously we are at I am a Tom Petty podcast, um, and we we talk about Mike Campbell's guitarist lots, and he leans into you know we call him the Barry Benz, like he leans into those lots, right? And because for mm-hmm. rock and roll, they're still mm-hmm. a bedrock thing that every guitar player should be able to do if you're playing rock and roll or eight bar blues or anything like that yeah you kind of need those licks under your under your in your tool belt right yeah well uh, tom petty leans pretty hard on the on the pentatonic blue scale which is yeah. all his music's based around that sort of stuff so i of course he would and and any self-respecting guitar player is going to play a chuck berry lick now and again it's not, and they're fun man like that old rock and roll the old 60s rock oh, 50s and 60s rock and roll it's so much fun 
Yeah. So who are the who are the guitarists then for you? Like when you so you start getting into music and you you know you're sort of 15, 16 and you've you've got a new instrument and you're playing lots. Who were the guitarists who sort of really inflamed that passion in you to sort of go on and actually maybe think about starting to think about I might actually want to do this more seriously? Yeah, well, you'd have to move up. You'd have to move up ahead a bit in time then. So because, mm-hmm. you know, 15 to, I don't know, whatever, maybe 17, 18, somewhere in that neighborhood was all a horrible, horrible time for music. And that was that was the hair metal era. And <laughs> I was right into it. And I was doing my best to learn, you know, the the Girls, Girls, Girls song and uh, uh, album off of my <laughs> Motley Crue or whatever horrible song Poison came up with. And or, or or just any of those awful awful hair bands and that's that's how it started but then what happened ultimately i think was what really turned the corner for me was i heard uh, i heard stevie ray vaughan and uh, uh like a guy like david wilcox who i'm not sure if your american listeners will know he's a pretty famous blues guy out of uh, montreal and i heard guys like that playing and which i enjoyed immensely and they also could sing but they didn't sing like the metal guys where you have to sing like someone's got you by the nards right so I realized, oh hey, because uh, I mean, I I can I can actually I can yeah. sing this guy. Uh, so that's probably where re- where I really started to get really get started to get getting excited about it. And then, you know, then I started to form some some garage bands, which which never left the garage, but just all you know, yeah. always just playing, 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 trying to find this this person, that person that might, you know, you know, maybe take you take to the next level, maybe help you help you book gigs or record an album, which you know of course eventually all, all did happen but yeah yeah it's the, it's the old story right so do you remember do you remember your first band like do you remember sort of actually getting up on stage for the first time and, and playing songs in front of people who may or may not have paid but do you remember that sort of experience oh i sure do i sure do uh so the absolute first time i was 15 and it was at my uh my high school and they had a thing called a coffee house which if that makes right. sense to anybody doesn't mean anything except that it was like a a lit a lit night or a, a you know a people go up and perform night yeah whatever the hell they call it and so I, I i was yeah i was 15 and of course i was there was only three of us we had two guitar players and a drummer no bass player <laughs> because we didn't know anybody and the other two guys <laughs> couldn't sing at all and i could just i mean i could i could just sing on key but i had just i had no it was just it was just so bland yeah but anyhow we got up and we did we did i don't know four four songs or something like that so that was the absolute first time yeah uh and i remember another time go you know going ahead when we we're getting a little a little a little older and we played uh we play we played uh an open stage in town at a bar and we were called we called ourselves tall dark and tone deaf it's <laughs> uh, just ridiculous and the guy that was announcing us really had trouble getting that out he thought that was the stupidest thing he'd ever heard <laughs> and he wasn't wrong <laughs> Tall, dark, and tone deaf. It's brilliant. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's something anyhow, isn't it? So, obviously, you, you're now, obviously, you know, again, you've produced a lot of records, and records that, you know, from, you know, obviously, Jay Semko and the, the Sheepdogs and bands that, and people who would know. So when did, do you think, like you said, you know, you're playing a backing track on a little boogie box, and then you're sort of playing over top of it. Do you, do you remember when this spark for like, okay, I'm I'm happy playing and I enjoy doing that side of it, but now I'm interested in recording as well. Do you remember when that happened? What was what was that sort of what was your way into that side of uh, of music? Yeah, absolutely. So it was one of it was when we were still a garage band, and of course I was writing songs. Uh, even then, yeah. Uh, 
and I had written, I don't know what it was, maybe five, five songs, six songs, something like that. Uh, and I had called a studio, just a local studio in town to see what it would cost to do it. Mm -hmm. And I just simply, simply did not have the money. So I could go to my local uh, music store and rent an eight track reel to reel with the mixing board machine. I forget what it was for a week for X amount of dollars. And I could afford that. Yeah. I had absolutely no idea how to do it <laughs> or what I was doing. Uh, and, and, but I just dove in and just did it. Just, yeah. I just, I just, there was no internet back then. I would ask the guys at the store, like, Hey, like, what do you, you know, what do you, what do you do? What do you, which button do I in? press? Yeah. And they, and they just, they just helped me out and, yeah. you know, and that's, and that really, that was, that was it. And, you know, had I known then that it would take me to this vintage age of essentially doing the same thing, <laughs> and if I'd had the freaking good sense, I should have stayed in school. Yeah. But I mean, I think that that's. <laughs> I do think that, I mean, you know, and it just, this probably isn't true, but I always get that sense of the, the people who drift into things and pick them up and just learn by sheer force of will. I think there's a, you have a different, you have a different appreciation for it in a slightly different ear than someone who's gone through, you know, because I mean, obviously, if you go through production school, then you're going to learn easier ways to do things for sure. Yeah. And you learn tricks and things. But I think that if you, you know, you, the way that you've done it, that then means that you've got a certain personality and a specific sound when you're going to record things, but just because of the way that you've learned to do things, I think. And I think that's probably the same for, you know, your Rick Rubens and your Jimmy Iovines and these guys who came because they didn't, none of those guys went to school. They hung around the studio and they became sound engineers first and then they just did it. Right. So I think there's definitely a lot of, I think there's benefit in doing it that way. It really does. Uh, and, you know, I don't know for sure if this is really an audio thing, uh, but it really does seem like a lot of, People that end up in the audio world are our musicians and they came to it because they just want to record their own stuff. And, yeah. and you know, you either sort of take to it or, or you don't, uh, as you know, lots of guys in my band, they did not take to recording and they don't record, but yeah. I did. And I, and I've kept going. And so, and as you know, too, well, yeah, I guess you said I'm a production location sound mixer as well. Yeah. And the vast majority of the mixers that I know, and I, of course you don't know a ton because there's usually just one of you on sets. But most of them don't had never haven't gone to school. They just they just learn it, like you say, by yeah, by force. <laughs> and do, and so, would you say then to the like in that in the industry and being a fairly small industry in Saskatchewan, the province where we are, are most of those guys also musicians? Then, um, not all, but 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 at least half. Yeah, yeah, of varying degrees of. <laughs> <laughs> oh okay i'm being a smug asshole if they're no not, no 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 but I mean, they're not gonna listen to this <laughs> hey you but you also weren't putting yourself at the top of that list either right that's no, no no god no god no you know you talk about ten thousand hours and i've often thought because i've definitely got ten thousand hours in that i should be a lot better than i actually am. <laughs> well you as we have discussed many times my friend you you definitely don't um you don't appreciate yourself as much as you should do sometimes i think so oh, you're very wow. very very good at what you do oh. um so petty let's talk about petty then so obviously like you know again i, I said at the top here that we when we were talking about this we were prim primarily talking about full moon fever was that the first album then that sort of introduced you to tom petty or was it sort of refugee and breakdown yeah. or yeah it was it was refugee and whatever was on um, mtv or much music in canada right whatever his hits were i was well aware of all of them and probably learned to play a bunch of them but it was full moon fever that really 
really struck a chord with me. And w- what year did it come out? The year gone? You're going to be the expert. Eighty nine. Yeah. So, well, I guess I just I could just give it away. But yeah, so I was nineteen. So that was a pretty. Yeah. Uh, you know, my wife and I had just gotten together. Well, we were together, and you know, you know, we just listened to that album so much, and there were yeah. so many great moments on it, and it it influenced me in so many ways, just in the way it in the way it sounds and the song choices and all the stuff. Yeah, we just we just loved it. There's a, there's a thing about that here, like the, there are formative albums and artists that are just a product of timing. Yeah, like when you're 16 to 19, you pro- you really are prime for sort of just diving into something headlong and really listening to something. Especially, of course, you know, back in the day, we're old enough where we didn't have streaming. You know, no. the music, the libraries didn't even have music, so you basically had to buy whatever you wanted to listen to or tape it off the radio, and so your yeah. your, your record collection was quite small. Yeah. So when you when you find a really really good album like Full Moon Fever or you know like Revolver or something by the Beatles, you're gonna listen to it a lot. Yeah, which I don't and, think and, I don't think kids have these days, you know. Yeah, that's 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 actually a really good point. That's a good point, and I never really considered it that way. But uh, aren't you right? Because, well, so first of all, without getting too deep into this, music had value because you had to like you know actually come up with the fifteen bucks or twenty bucks, yeah. whatever it was, for that CD. And and when I was that age, that was a lot more money than it is now, like to to me and and to the yeah. <laughs> to the world. And so you value that. And so you, you made sure you get your, got your money out of it and you listened the hell out of it. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, as we all know, you'd, you'd buy, you'd buy the song, you'd buy the album for this song. And then very quickly, you know, the, the last song on side B is your, is your, your the, you know, the last song, the album yeah. is your favorite song now. It's like, oh, that's the good stuff. Right. So yeah, the deep cuts. Yeah. But, but as I say, full, full moon fever is almost, it's almost just a, bunch of number ones just stuck on this yeah. album. <laughs> it's yeah. not a greatest hits album, but it might as well be. It's, you know. Well, especially side one. I mean, it's it's just insane. But let's talk, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, um, as you are a producer, you know, one of the things that there are, there is a faction within the Petty fandom, and there's definitely a, a faction of people writ large in music who don't love Jeff Lynne's production style. You know, yeah. from ELO through Tom Petty and Orbison and Harrison and, and beyond, because he's got a very specific thing that he does. So why do you, what is it that drew you to, or is there anything that sort of drew you to that production style? Or if you're thinking back now, what is it about the way that album sounds, do you think, that makes it so special? Yeah, I mean, so there again, I, I wouldn't have known probably on those first listens that Jeff Lynne had yeah. anything to do with it. So so it, it can't it can't be that. It can't be the, you know, I don't really know what it was. Well, first of all, I think the album sounds amazing. I think it's yeah. an absolutely terrific sounding album. Uh, and there again, I think just just the song choices and 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 Tom himself, just how they're you know how they're written, how he sang it. You know, yeah. I mean, just it, it was just all of it. And you know, later on, as I've got older, I did get to appreciate. Oh, okay. Well, this is what this is what Jeff brought to the table. Yeah. And not like I'm a because I'm not a big. I don't know all the petty stuff, but I listened to the albums before he came on board and it's like, Ooh, to my ear, I, I like him better. Okay. But, but maybe, but maybe it's just a more, maybe I just prefer a more polished approach. You know what I mean? I mean, well, cause that's, that's what, that's why there's punk rock still being played in the world and the, all these shitty takes with out of tune and stuff. Because Absolutely. Like well, and it's, it's that thing of this was Tom's first solo record. Yeah. And it was also the first pop record, really. I mean, there was some, Popier songs of the waiting, and you know some some stuff and don't come around here no more are, are pop more than their rock, 
Whereas yeah. really they were rock, they are, and they are still the Heartbreakers at heart, are a rock and roll band and an old school rock and roll band for, at that. Yes. So for Tom to step into this, you know, and you got Free Fallen and I Won't Back Down, Moon Down a Dream, they're, they're nice, tight, concise, getting, get out pop songs, which if you're going to write a pop song, this is, this is like a blueprint for it, right? This is how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. write a good big chorus, you know, have a good hook, come up with a good lyric and don't mess around with it. Good, good guitar lick, right? Especially oh, in, man. in 1989. I mean, you know, I guess <laughs> if anything, maybe, maybe it was some of those guitar licks that like, oh, hey, it's like, oh, hey, man, that's not that hard, you know? I, I yeah. Do that. And, you know, there were songs that, 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 that you could play, right? You know, you didn't have to be, uh, you know, you didn't have to be an amazing jazz musician to, yeah. you know, to make sure you could play that F minor 13 chord or whatever. Well, Tom said that once about that was with the Beatles. The Beatles, Changed the world, not just because I mean, you know, they the Beatles when they especially when they started, they really were just mainly sort of appropriating the old blues stuff and the old rock and roll stuff and and, and putting their own spin on it. But one of the things that inspired so many people was when you listen to the Beatles on first on on face value, you think, yeah, I can do that. I can mm -hmm. play those three four chords and I can sing. Like you know, we can do some of those things that that's accessible and that's approachable. Yeah. And I do find the same thing with Tom's music. But as I was telling you, you know few weeks ago whatever when you really start digging into full moon fever that's when you realize oh there's a hell of a lot going on here like jeff lynn the, the, the just the sheer sort of weight of guitars and the number of guitar tracks on this album that you don't notice is yeah. incredible yeah 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 lots of double tracked uh acoustics and probably yeah on one side and sixes on the other and yeah big big production he didn't. Uh, he didn't worry about playing it live, which I still think is the best uh, production approach when you're recording. Well, and that's you know was always that's the thing that Jeff Lynne has always been known for is that he doesn't really in the recording process doesn't mm -hmm. really care about the band. That's not what's important. It's the song, the the individual song. That individual song needs to be as good as it can possibly be. And if that means getting this drummer instead of that drummer, or it means that guy not playing on it, or it means adding four more guitar parts where you're only going to play two of them on stage. You write yep. the best song that you can, and then you worry about the live performance afterwards. And I think that that was for Tom, especially because obviously, I mean, as, as, as not a catalog fan that you're not, coming off the back of Let Me Up, I've Had Enough, which was the album that precedes this, where they'd gone in and basically just sort of almost half the songs were written sort of live off the floor. Mm -hmm. And to the point where actually Tom's calling out chords, and then they took that off afterwards and used that bass track, and then he just wrote lyrics on top of that. So to come into this environment where Jeff Lynn's doing something completely differently, yeah. As an artist, it gives you this different set of tools that you can use moving forward. And he said, well, I'm not going to do that all the time, but I'm definitely going to use this approach here. Or I'm going to use that skill that I learned there. And it just makes you better as a performer. Like, and he was very lucky that Jeff Lynne came into his life and they'd had the experience with the Wilburys and with this album. So, you know, just, just serendipity really sort of turned the, the ship around when he, when he needed it most. I have definitely worked with a few, uh, a few artists that are concerned about how they're going to be able to play this live. Well, yeah, because I mean, I mean, I listen to your stuff, Randy, and you've, you know, the, the five albums sort of from Abs Funk and Lutley and, and Randy Wood's band. And when I come see you play live, they're very rarely, you know, what you recorded because you, you write the song in the studio at a given time. And then when you get out and road test it, then it evolves and then it changes. And that's, we've talked about this lots, where I think that a good live band should do that. I think you should sort of, it should evolve and it should grow and it should change. It should get better, hopefully, right, from what you wrote. But like you said, I mean, there's the stuff that you write on, uh, on your songs that, that you do in the studio that you just couldn't, you physically just couldn't do it live because you've only got one guitarist and you can't play two guitar parts. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess ideally, in, in, a, in a perfect world, 
you would have your dozen songs and and you know you'd be be able to go out and play them road test yeah. them and play them god man even if you're able to play them 20 nights in a row or so that would be just absolutely invaluable because they end up they end up changing over time yeah. so you know you you know you you jam out out in the studio and it's and it's great it just seems like it's all the right thing you get out and do it in front of an audience and you like i said you do it a, a bunch of times and it, it just takes on a whole other life and i've always thought man if i could just go back in and record yeah. this now this is what it would be it wouldn't be what it was before yeah but but i well i've had the luxury maybe just a, just a, with a handful of songs but you know, I, I and I and I suppose maybe I suppose maybe if if you had a budget like Tom would, maybe you could maybe you could just jam jam for a month and 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 just get just get them to a to a place yeah. where you, you couldn't even conceive of another improvement. You know what I mean? But still, but getting them in front of people is the is the big thing. Are they are they interested? Are they engaged? Does this does anybody cling to this? Is it yeah? You know what I mean? What is what is it this, that you know? Because I know what brought me to it, but what brings other people to it, right? You don't I know think, until the point. I think there is though. There's there's an issue though too though with like you know a smaller act can probably can do that more easily because the audience isn't going to know their originals in a lot of cases. Where if you get to a certain level, like you're at Petty or you're Springsteen or you're the Stones or whatever, the fans want to hear the sort of fifteen top ten hits that you've had. And if you're bringing out like six, seven songs that are not even on an album yet, that's going to be a little bit tougher. I think. You know what I mean? For, for an act at a certain level, maybe. And they did, I mean, all, all acts do, they will say, oh, we haven't, this is a new song, we haven't recorded it yet. You will get that now and again, and, and Petty did that every so often, but I think it maybe is a little bit harder once you get to that level. Do, do you not think? Yeah. No, I, I, I disagree completely, actually. I think, hmm. I think it's, I think it's just as hard at, at, at any level. Okay. So it, let's just, I mean, let's just say that you are lucky enough to have people come to your gigs. Well, they're going to want to hear whatever it is that you do, they yeah. probably don't want to hear you stretching your legs out and working on new songs. Uh, so you obviously uh, you'd have to bring them, bring them as polished as absolutely possible. Yeah. But, uh, but, but no. Yeah. And so if you're, if you're known, if you're known to, to, you know, to, to play this, this type of stuff and you're, you're out there trying to <laughs> work in some new material. Yeah. You won't be, you know, you won't be terribly popular. So it's funny though, you'll get hired by the club again. Right. I mean, that, yeah. it's, it, uh, yeah, 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 yeah money or music music is money it's all about it's all about money right it, it, it just is as much as we would like to say it isn't it is uh so when i'm i know i've told you this kev yeah but the uh the the cash register is the loudest instrument in the room <laughs> yeah, nothing more true <laughs> so kev i was gonna ask you a question you guys you and uh somebody who i don't know went through full moon fever did you rank the songs we don't do that actually, but what we do no do way. is we, we do a thing called producer for the day where we we reimagine it because what we do is we take sort of, you know, if there are any B-sides or outtakes or other songs that were recorded during the sessions, would we take anything off Full Moon Fever and put anything on? Would we resequence? Would we put things in a different order? And so we, we did that, but we didn't actually rank them. But if you did, I'd love to hear your rankings. That would be, I mean, I could do them off the cuff, but I'd love to hear that if you, if you have them ranked. No, I, no? I do not. <laughs> I, I was just, I was just going to say, I was just going to ask you this question then. Let me just ask it to you this way. If you had to lose one song off the album, not add anything, just lose it, which one would you lose? Because that um, sure would be for me. Yeah, we, we talked about that. I mean, we, we both lost Zombie Zoo and Feel a Whole Lot Better. And for, for, and for, two, and for different reasons. Like, I mean, it's not like either of them is a bad song. And Feel a Whole Lot Better is a phenomenal, faithful cover of that song. But it's so yeah. straight. And we've talked about that lots in the past too, that 
Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I tend to prefer, if you're going to do a cover, I tend to prefer that you change it and make it your own. So, you know, we went to a concert last night and went and saw a jazz and boogie woogie player who did a crazy little thing called Love and Money by the Beatles and People Get Ready. And they sounded nothing like the originals, but they were killer. And I like that's what I prefer. So I feel a whole lot better. While it's a great cover, mm-hmm. I think it could have I think it could have stood sort of stood to have been a B side. Right, right. Well, interesting, because I always love Tom's version of it. Um Yeah. And uh and what was the other one you said you'd get get rid of? Zombie Zoo. Oh, Zombie Zoo. I just yeah. think it's a bit it's a bit of fluff. There's nothing wrong with it again. I mean, it's just a yeah, bit Yeah, it's a bit fluffy, yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah, well, my comments on that one, when I did the episode on that one, my comments on one of the comments on that was, and again, it, it it's hard to for this to be a criticism of it because I do I also love Jeff Lynn. I've always loved the LO, and I basically think Jeff Lynn's a genius. But Zombie Zoo, Zoo sounds more like a Jeff Lynn song to me than Tom Petty. And obviously, they worked so closely on this album. They wrote, they co-wrote most of the songs on it. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's only there's three songs that are written by Tom alone. Everything else is a core right between either Tom and Jeff, Tom and Mike, or or the three of them. But that one is where it sort of the the, the needle, you know, it just moves that little bit more into being Jeff Lynne and Tom Petty. And it's just again, I mean, Tom said it was it, it, like Jeff Lynne wanted this song on the album. Tom really didn't care whether this one's on the album. Um, said if he'd really thought about it, he probably would have lobbied to not have it on the album. So it was never it was never a favorite of his. And it's again, it's nothing wrong with it, but it's just a bit. Mm. You know, and I think the other the other problem with it is it's on an album where everything else is up against is remarkable. Yeah, you know? everything else is so good. Yeah. Here's a question: uh, Why? So, if this is Tom's first uh, solo album, mm-hmm. why do you think he remained so close and had Mike play on it and write write with? And I mean, I know it was he was they wrote lots together. I yeah. understand that, but if he was trying to break away, I wonder why he did that. Was it? Was he trying to get a new rhythm section and a new organ player, or what do you think? No, it wasn't that. Basically, it was it was a little bit of well, mainly circumstance where they were on a bit of a break, and they actually had started sessions for a new album, new Heartbreakers album, and there are a couple of songs kicking around that are from sort of sessions that would have been the next Heartbreakers album. Um, but then the Wilburys happened, and Tom sort of hooked up with Jeff Lynne, and he'd written "You Are So Bad," and was hanging out with Jeff and George Harrison. Which just when you throw that into like just as a throwaway sentence is insane, right? Um, mm-hmm. They're hanging around, and he plays this for Jeff Lynne and says, "Hey, would you would you want to produce this?" So it sort of organically came from that, and they, you know, Bugs Wydell is is sound guy and is sort of his right hand man. Tom's right hand man bought this little crappy um, piano, electronic keyboard thing, and Tom said, "Like, why the hell have you bought this? Um, this is just a waste of money." And he said, "Bugs said to him, well, if you get one song out of it, it'll pay for itself.' Well, the song that he got out of it was Free Falling." Mm-hmm. And he played it for Jeff, and it, and he was making up the lyrics just to make Jeff Lynne laugh. So I think it was more of a just it became very organic, and because he enjoyed working with Jeff so much, it was just natural that maybe they'd write a few songs and record a few songs, which then developed into well, we'll do a whole album. The Heartbreakers, you know, uh, Stan Lynch, Belmont Tench, um, and Howie Epstein weren't keen, mm-hmm. and I think it was partially because they preferred that sort of band approach rather than. You know, and again, your your band leader's now writing songs with someone else. And it's Jeff Lynne, by the way. It's not someone known. It's like this big, you know, this big mm. producer. So I think it was just yeah. that sort of, okay, and Tom's saying, you know, well, okay, then I'll do it myself. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'll, I don't care what you guys think. I'm going to do this. Mm. Now, of course, they played most of these songs live as a band for sure the rest of Tom's career. So, you know, but it, yeah. it definitely wasn't, a, Tom wasn't trying to, he definitely wasn't trying to break the heartbreakers up. I don't think that was ever the intention. It was just, I've got this opportunity. I'll write these songs with Jeff Lynne. We'll record him in Mike Campbell's 
garage, you know? So, because yeah. that was the thing as well, it's because, you know, will you reproduce this song? Yeah, sure. Where should we, where should we record it? Well, we can do it in Mark's studio, you know, in, in Mark's own studio in his garage. So again, it's just, it was all very organic, very, very natural, just like the Wilburys. So, yeah. Hmm. There you go. Question answered. But the, the, so I'll tell you this, there is a thing that you won't know, not being like the, the petty head, you know, like that I am, but when they took this to MCA, MCA didn't want to release it. Yeah. Do you know why? Wow. Not, they didn't hear a single probably. They Literally. They said, well, we don't hear a single on this, on this album. Yeah. Free Falling, I Won't Back Down, Running Down a Dream. Forget your so bad department song, Facing the Crowd. Like, you know, all these songs that they, like you don't, you don't think Free Falling is a single. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like, get out of town. Okay, well, Full Moon Fever we talked about, and you know lots. And we talked about, I think, obviously, Damn the Torpedoes. I think pretty much everyone in North America who's interested in guitar and string music would know to some degree of our, of our vintage anyway. Um, rest of the catalog, though, like because I gave you these eight songs. Are there any other albums, really, that you that you knew from Tom's catalog? I mean, obviously, I've talked to you a lot about Wildflowers has been a, a really important album to me, but general strokes, like Petty's career outside of Full Moon Fever, did you keep up with it at all, or were you just sort of dip your toes in radio stuff, or like, what was your experience with the rest of it? Yeah, I would I would say probably just whatever was uh, whatever was on the radio. I don't, I'm just trying to think of which other albums I might have... Uh... I might've had, but you know, I certainly, I certainly know, I certainly know a, a bunch of these. I'm just got a track listing. I'm looking up here. Yeah. Uh, I certainly know a lot of them, but, but I, but I don't know all of them. And, and like I said, I don't like you guys know what songs on what album and all that <laughs> shit. I, I don't know that about my favorite, favorite artists. So, so I don't even know how you guys keep track of all that shit. So. Well, it's funny, right? Because we talked about that on, I think it was on our on our Queen podcast that because, you know, Randy and I do Seaside Pod Review, the Queen podcast, um, where we're digging into that catalog. And I'm a catalog fan of Queen and Randy's more of a Greatest Sits fan. So we were talking about that and you said there is there really isn't a band at all that you would say that you know inside out who played on what, which guest musicians came in, what year they were released, what the singles were. There's, there's just no one who you are like that with, right? You don't have that band. So, which I, again, I always find fascinating in its own right that you're such an accomplished musician and songwriter but there isn't that one you know maybe stevie ray would be the closest maybe yeah but even still i don't know what song from one <laughs> album i see i was more interested in learning how to play it yeah yeah and and what the how to play the chords and how to how to learn that lead and how to how to sing it and what were the yeah. lyrics were as opposed to well and and into a, another degree to how it was recorded and how it was how they got these sounds and way more than like when was it released and what album was it on yeah. and who the nerd stuff well <laughs> uh, and producing you know as you know yeah. as i got older i was way more interested in the producers and but yeah so all all of that little all of those little nuancey things i just never i just never I'm not completely un, uninterested in it it just i didn't uh, i just didn't i never i didn't dig into it i don't know yeah. i i feel i feel a little out of place talking to people who know so much about these specific artists in such depth. Yeah, but I, 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 I've come to the sort of realization from being a part of the Deep Dive Podcast Network and sort of getting into this kind of stuff that it's it's those of us who do that and sort of dive into the minutiae, we are we're the minority because the the massive the massive majority of like and you're a musician, so you're sort of maybe slightly on the the the, the lower end of the fringe side of that sort of stuff as a musician, but the general public they don't mm -hmm. care man like the, the the average music consumer does not care couldn't even tell you 
a producer, no. what even is that, right? So, yeah, it's a nerd thing. Like, you know, and I'm okay with that. I'm all right with that. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, there's uh, there's queen nerds, I call them. <laughs> and then now, I guess it, there's petty heads. There is, yeah. Petty heads. But there's also what I what I've loved about the podcast um, is the the petty heads, or certainly a, a big chunk of them, know Tom's life and a lot of the sort of the the detail of it in a lot of sort of a lot of depth, but less so on the musical side. Where I mean, you know, Randy, I'm I'm sort of a hack music critic. I, I know enough to be able to talk reasonably intelligently about some of it, but I'm far from I'm not a I'm not you know. Rick Beato or, or or even you when it comes to sort of analyzing music. But I've realized that once you start exposed to people to that kind of stuff, they do listen to it slightly differently and they do pick up on and hear things and appreciate things slightly differently. So it's very, very cool to have both sides of it. You can have the nerds, you can have the music nerds, you can have the centrists, you can have, I think, as long as we're all talking, it's like politics, Randy. Why can't we, you wrote a song, why can't we get along? Wow. Yeah, this is, this is a real breakthrough I think we've had here. Hey. <laughs> If we could just get on the in front of the UN and just describe this, I think we might be able to achieve <laughs> world peace in like you just had that statement in no less than a minute. So I've told you this story, Kevin. I'll tell it to your listeners real quick. Um, a pretty pretty good friend of mine left Saskatchewan and, and uh, he was on a scholarship down in uh, in uh, in the U.S. of A. in California, and for a time he delivered water, and he delivered water to Tom Petty's house, and Tom Petty's wife at the time. You'll tell me. I don't know what her name is. Probably Jane, I think. Yeah, this this had been we 80, established. This had yeah. been in 89, 87. Yes, yeah, so it was Jane Benio, yeah. Something like that. Uh Tom wasn't there, but uh my friend, she he she gave him a little tour of the house and, and the yeah. studio. And uh we were thoroughly tickled pink when he came back and told us a story. Yeah. Uh, you know, years later it was like, What? Oh, that's <laughs> incredible. So there you go. There's a little there's a little Tom Petty story. And you know. We covered, we played a lot of these songs and, and we just, we just played the shit out of them just in drunken bar rooms all up and down Western Canada. <laughs> Do you remember which songs? Do you remember which songs you, you would have played? Well, we definitely played, uh, uh, the apartment song and, yep. uh, running down a dream for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then that's all I can think of right at this moment. I think though too though you know like as a bar band if you, if, or as a covers band because I I don't I don't love the term bar band because there's a slight negative connotation to that right where oh it's just a bar band well, there's some really freaking good bar bands out there man and, you know and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers are probably one of the greatest cover bands of all time which you know you and I should sit down and listen to the film more at some point because I think you'd you'd really love it mm -hmm. just to listen to a band who just knows how to play you know they can just yeah. basically play anything um, but when you know if you if you rip into running down a dream. Because I've been seeing you play live lots of times, and there's certain songs where you know, as soon as you start playing the opening licks to Sledgehammer, people are going to go nuts because they love it. Yeah. When you yeah. play that opening lick to Run Down a Dream, you know you've got the audience straight away, right? Even if they're not massive petty heads. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And uh, you know, to the to the to uh, uh, the the bar band comment, I don't know. I mean, that's basically all my career has been is is yeah. playing smoky, shitty bars and. Uh, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think it's, uh, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's a well-deserved title. It means it's more than just saying you're a cover band. It's like, no, we we actually go and actually do it, yeah, and actually perform it in front of people, and and you know, are the MCs of the party, you know, that yeah. night. 
when I've, you know, I always say, you know, I, I call my, I don't call myself a drummer, or if I do, I say a hobbyist drummer, or I say I play drums, because really, I think a drummer is someone who goes and plays gigs, and you know what I mean. Like, you know, mm. if, if you're a musician, well, that's reserved for people who actually go out and play live and make money, and you know, I mean, you, of course, you are a musician if, if you don't do those things, but yeah, this it's like you know, Petty did when he someone asked him about the. American Idol thing, and he said, "Yeah, I'm fine for you. You know, of course they're they're singers and they're 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 you know whatever pop stars or whatever, but just don't call them songwriters. You know, <laughs> don't call them musicians because they're not. You know? so, yeah, well, that's another which thing was a fair I, comment, you know. It's another thing you and I have talked about as well, Kev. Is that so? You say you're so okay. You're a musician, fine. Okay, so there are just so many types of musician. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, studio musician. You know." Even like a producer, generally session musicians, yeah, session musicians, live musicians. I mean, there's so many types and so many different disciplines, and and you just can't be good at them all. Yeah, you, you can't be, and 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 so you just have to get as good as you can at at, at whatever you can. And and Tom's 100 percent right. There's nothing wrong with those. I call them the karaoke shows. There's nothing wrong with those yeah. karaoke shows, but they're not. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I tend to not be as interested in a song that might maybe come out of one of those karaoke contestants uh, because I know they haven't sweated it out in, in, in the clubs and yeah. and came up organically uh, with, you know, just building fan by fan, by fan, by fan, by fan, by fan. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think, I think the, the real good artists, they, they, they earn that. And then there's that, there's that reverence. And I think when they write it, it means more. And, and do you know what I mean? Like there's all those hundred percent, those things that come with doing it that way that you don't get out of the, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to think of one of the, the, the most famous, you know, karaoke contests. Don't know any of them. <laughs> just well, don't yeah, know well, any of them at all. One of them on TV now, you know, she's like a t- talk show host or something. So, okay. I mean, and you know, she's probably a great talk show host, but. but and you know, some of them are good singers. Well, of course but they again, are. Again, yeah. to me, it's the, 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 the sort of the, the bit where I, the sticking point for me is I like, I, I like songwriters. I like people who, and that's not to dismiss Aretha Franklin because Aretha didn't write a ton of her own songs, right? I mean, I'm not or Elvis, or whatever. But I, I just tend to drift more towards songwriters because I'm I'm drawn to creative people in First that sense, you know. Yeah. Well, and of course, Tom, uh, you know, wrote a million of them. So, well, and there again, uh, you wouldn't have Tom Petty or Bob Dylan. They wouldn't get past the oh the front door. Doesn't Dylan? Dave Grohl, doesn't Dave Grohl make some joke about that too? Like, he of course, make, yeah, I mean, of course. You know what I mean? Uh, but you know, there they are. There they are. Okay, well, let's um, let's talk about these songs that I sent you, Randy. I gave you eight songs, and I did put them in sort of chronological order, which we just talked about offline, and we did. You, I probably weren't aware of that, but so, and I will talk through, you know, why I sort of skip certain albums and whatnot. But so, the first one I gave you. Um, is the Wild One Forever, which is from the 1976 debut, mm-hmm. um, produced by Danny Cordell, um, and to me has always felt like a bit of a John move, John Hughes movie. Mm. It's got that sort of you know that teenage angst thing, and it throws me back to high school and being in love with the wrong girl and <laughs> blah 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 blah. So, uh, yeah. It, so, okay. So first of all, I, yeah, I had not heard the song before. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know, of course, Tom's vocals always pretty great. Uh, my one real, you know, my, my one note was that the, 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 uh, the toms actually really sound very like a cardboard boxes. Right. And, and I do, you said what, 77? 76. 
76. See, they might not have used uh, a, a closed tom with skins on both sides yeah. at that time. So they could, and so they, and they actually used to mic them differently too. So I'm not sure that's a result of that, but they sound like wet cardboard bags, boxes, <laughs> sorry to me. Uh, and then, you, you know, and, and it's, it's a good song. It's a fine song. I don't, I don't hate the song or anything. But then it's got a, it's got a, and I'll, I'll, I'll pose this as a question maybe. Okay. Uh, are fade outs lazy? Okay. So this is something that I talked about. <laughs> I talked about this a little bit with this album because a lot of these songs fade out on this first album. The first two albums actually. And I think some of it is you want to get these songs down to time where you want an, al- you want an album to be about 30 minutes or so, right? Back in the mid 60s, mid 70s, uh, like, yeah, let's get them down to half an hour, right? For vinyl, yeah. Yeah, and on a vinyl, but I mean, you got twenty-two minutes on the, or twenty-one minutes on side on the side of a vinyl. But the, the Denny Cordell, especially the producer, really wanted to get these things down tight. Like, just wanted them to be short songs because the longest song on the debut record is three minutes forty-eight. Like, breakdown is two minutes forty-two. Right. When they recorded it, it was seven minutes because that's a jam song. Right, but he right. pared it all down, right? So you've got this producer who doesn't want to stretch things out. So I think that's where a lot of those fade outs come from. And we've talked about it tons. I do think I don't always love a fade out. Yeah, I don't always love a fade out for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I actually don't even really know what my opinion is on fade outs because <laughs> that's why that's why it poses the questions. Are are they lazy? I mean, uh, it it's just... They do work sometimes. They just didn't. They just didn't have. They just didn't have an ending. You know what I mean? (laughs) Or if you're going to have the fade out, then then like like lay a face face melter over top on the on the outro. So it's like, oh, this is Mike. These are tearing it up here. You know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but beyond that, beyond that, it's it's a pretty pretty decent song. Not a bad song to have on your first album too. Hey, you think about sort of you know? Of course, it turns out Tom's pretty talented. Well, so I mean, the first the debut album was a bit of a hodgepodge because. Denny Cordell um, at Shelter Records really had sort of decided that, well, he'd signed Mudcrutch. So Tom's the band before, you know, the band that sort of mm-hmm. became the Albrex, but what didn't really. Um, ben Montench and Mike Campbell were part of Mudcrutch with Tom and they got them in, but just for some reason they didn't think it was going to work. So Denny Cordell's idea was that Tom would be a solo artist and they would bring in session musicians to record, you know, like John Cougar or any of these guys from that era where, well, we'll just get whoever to play on them. It doesn't matter because it's Tom that we're going to sell. So this album's a bit of a mishmash in that regard because gradually Tom Tom never wanted that. Tom always wanted to be part of a band because he was that he was one of those guys. I don't I don't want to be I don't want to be Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. That's just a the band is Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. It's not Tom Petty with this backing band, the Heartbreakers. It, that's the band. And so he yeah. sort of he, he kind of surreptitiously would bring he, he created the Heartbreakers, and then brought them into the sessions, and eventually, well, then it becomes a band record, but there's fluctuations in sort of the the songwriting styles and the production. And there's, 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 some, there's a lot of guest musicians on the first record where that sort of tapered off in the, in the later years. So, yeah. Well, they're just getting their legs under them, right? So yeah. Makes sense. First, first, first album they've ever, you know, like you said, mm-hmm. Studio Craft is, is different to playing live and they were a tight live band. They were really good, you know, yeah. once they started playing, but the recording, like, I don't know, we don't know how to do this. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I'm sure, yeah, it's, it's reflected in, in the, you know, in the way it sounds, and yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we we got we got we kicked off with a you know a song off the first record, and it's not a hit. And like I, I, as I said, with the Petty Eight, I, I want to deliberately get away from. I don't want to give you American Girl and the Waiting and listen to her heart. I want to give you songs that might sort of 
challenge your idea of what Tom Petty is or who he is and, and what he does. Um, so the second song, um, and I missed You're Gonna Get It, which is the second album. So Listen to Heart is from that record. Great song. Mm-hmm. I missed Damn the Torpedoes because there's, I mean, I think probably you would know almost everything off that record because you probably heard it lots. So yep. the next song I gave you was Something Big from Hard Promises. And this one is, I, I always call it Tom's first real story song. And he was very good at writing sort of in character. And so Something yep. Big is 1981. It's the second album that Jimmy Iovine um, produced for them. What were your thoughts on it? Uh, for this one, really, I, I, my first the first thing that struck me was uh, that I really like the congas. And I don't think that he uses congas a, a, a bunch. Nope. Uh, and so I thought those were really cool and a little a little different than what I was expecting from uh, Thomas Thomas Petty. And then of course I liked the uh, the organ track. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I knew you would. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then my only other note that I had on that song, but I mean, you know, I liked the song. I liked it. I thought it was a good song. My only other note was that I'd say right around four minutes, this the song was really over, but then it okay. went on another forty some seconds. So it's just I don't know. I thought it was just. Yeah, I think it was done in four minutes, and they could have just, just they could have just, just, just a hair too long. Stopped. Yeah, <laughs> it was done. It was over. There's nothing added in the last forty, forty five okay. seconds. But, but that's just my, my humble, humble, highly, highly accurate opinion. <laughs> <laughs> when I just looked, and I, I didn't realize that until you've just said that it is the longest song on the album, which is. Kind of surprising. I also thought, and I don't know if you remember it specifically, but I think there's the organ part, but I think there's a Rhodes piano in there too. Yes. Yeah. There's which either, is super there's cool. Some, there's some kind of a suitcase piano in there. For yeah, sure. it sounds really good, man. Which, and, as you know well, know I love it's uh, use a suitcase piano in lots of my stuff. So yeah. When so because with Jimmy Iovine, well, sorry, the the first two albums, Ben Montench, the keyboard player, for some reason was was really sort of on a lot of songs was either sort of mixed really low or his parts were sort of really diminished where Jimmy Iovine, I think, and I don't know if it was deliberate or just a part of the, how the songs were written for Damn the Torpedoes and then Our Promises, really recognized that Ben Montage is a very important part of the Heartbreakers sound when they're playing live because Ben Montage is an absolute monster of an organist, a pianist. I said, like, the guy can play anything with keys, right? So I think getting him in, in the mix better on refugee like the organ part on refugee is kind of makes the song right you got a great riff but that totally. big fat organ sound is so crucial to the sound and the same thing with this one it just wouldn't work without that you know that that organ and that uh that piano playing it's so good yeah yeah completely agree well i'm glad you agree because that makes everything easier um so i then i skip an album so jimmy Iovine recorded well it was pretty produced three albums and partially produced the six albums of the accents, but he did uh, Damn the Torpedoes, then Hard Promises, which something big is from, and then Long After Dark. And I didn't put a song from Long After Dark on. Then we get to Dogs on the Run from Southern Accents. And I'll ask for your thoughts on the song first and then give you a little bit of background and context for where it came from and the album sort of generally as a as a recording it, uh, process. So uh, what year was this one recorded, Kev? Dogs this is 85. 85. Yeah. It really sounds of that era to me. Yeah, for sure. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, obviously it's from that era, so it should sound like that. Uh, but it seems like there's lots of stuff that kind of sounded like this at that time. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah, it's a fine song. It didn't. It didn't. It, it didn't. Didn't just grab me and and blow me away. And and you had said offline there too, which is very true. Is uh, Tom is very much uh, 
he's very much strangling that vocal. He's really yeah. like he's got his nose plugged. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that when he does that because he doesn't do it all the time. That's where Petty as a vocalist, I always think doesn't always get the appreciation that I think he deserves because he's he can do a lot of different things with his voice. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's the songs in this list that we're going to listen to that don't sound anything like this. Mm-hmm. And he's doing this deliberately. That's a, that's a, that's a, an aesthetic choice that he's, he's decided to, to deliver it this way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'll give you a bit the of guitar, background on this. Just, just, real, just real quick, just wanted to add. Yeah. Is I, the guitar lick, the the main uh, hook, hooky guitar lick is is pretty cool. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, I mean, well, that's why I call it the hooky guitar lick. Because that's yeah. the thing that, that's what I take away most from this song is that. Yeah. So. And you, you've played that for me, even though you probably don't remember. That's that's one of did, my stings. I was just going to say, did did I did I do yeah. one of these for you? You did, uh, yeah. Well, that's maybe that's why I I, I gravitate towards that. Thing. <laughs> but it's such a great like, and that's again, that's Campbell. Just you know, Mike Campbell's little bit of secret sauce that he can throw into a song that, like I said, I, that's where we listened to it a, a little bit of it. I said that this is to me is always kind of it's his most Springsteen-y song because the boss did this i mean ad nauseum right i mean springsteen did this kind of song all the time where it's anthemic and it's rooted in sort of the underdog and you know fighting mid, against the mid tempo mid tempo you know it's very it's very bruce yeah and tom didn't do it a lot but there's always been something about this song and i think it's the lyric that i was and we should i should say that um like my last petty eight guest scott haskin I think it's fair to say, Randy, that you don't tend to focus certainly immediately on lyrics, right? We, we've talked about this lots together too, that yeah. lyrics are not quite as sort of front of mind for you as they are maybe for me. Yeah, well, I can, I can tell you exactly how it works for me if you like. It's, I, uh, I, I mean, I hear, I hear everything and then I hear lyrics last. <laughs> and so then when I write songs, I, it's almost like that too. So, uh, and I find yeah. the lyrics the hardest to, to write. Yeah, uh, they're the most important thing. I feel as though when I'm when I'm writing them, but and I think there's got to be a lot of people like me. When I listen to a song, I'm I'm listening to I mean probably first and foremost is the melody, mm-hmm. and the rhythm and the rhythm and the groove, and then I'm listening to what all the other instruments are doing, and then obviously it's not like I'm not listening to the words. So when the when the chorus comes in, you know, hey, whatever the lyrics are, I, I'm listening to that. But like all the the nuance and the verses and and you know. You know, if if it's telling a story and what is the story, yeah. that's that's usually after I'm quite familiar with the song, okay. and I have to like it enough to get to, to... that point. <laughs> because if I don't like it enough, I'll never get there. So there could be yeah. some amazing lyrics that uh, Uncle Randy is not hearing because he doesn't like the bass. Yeah, whatever it is. Well, and, there, and there is this is one of my again. I mean, I, I've commented on this lots on on the podcast that I'd say in eighty five to ninety percent of Tom's songs. There's at least one line in every song where you go, oh, man, that's good. You know, yeah. we think, oh, man, I wish I'd written that. And there's a yeah. line in this where the, the sort of the third verse where he, he starts out and he says, the room was painted. And it's, it's so the, the story's about him sort of being, I don't know, rescued or taken by this this young uh, bleach blonde. And then he says, the room was painted blue and gray. All my meals were served on a silver tray. Oh, she would laugh and light my cigarettes. And then you get the line, and she said, "Honey, ain't it funny how a crowd gathers round anyone living life without a net?" And you think it's brilliant. Like that's a brilliant observation of life, and it's, it's thrown into this. It's got almost a throwaway line in the middle of this song, mm-hmm. which is what Petty was all about. He had just had a million of those. It's incredible to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He definitely had a way to do that. Okay, so we go from southern accents. 
and we skip um, Let Me Up I've Had Enough and we go to a song off Fulmer Fever that you know very well. Yeah. So I want to talk to you about the apartment song. Yeah, sure. Okay, so the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to play you a different version of the apartment song that almost what? certainly you've never heard. What? And then I'll give you a bit of background on it. So I'm just going to play that. Play some, it's only a two minute, a two and a half minute song. We'll probably listen to most of it. So You're blowing my mind. So I just played a little bit of the um, the demo version from 1984 for the the album we just talked about, Southern Accents. This was originally recorded for those sessions. And so Tom, his original idea for Southern Accents, Randy, was that he wanted to write sort of a, a love letter to the South, and you know, where he grew up in, in Gainesville, Florida. And so he went, he said, well, I'll pick single words and I'll pick trailer and apartment and rebels and sheets, which was a song that probably was going to be about the clan you know, and would, would have been super interesting, but never made. I don't think it ever got recorded or finished, but so he had these ideas and he recorded all this. So this one, um, the apartment song, he and Stevie used to get together all the time and hang out and just play, right? You know, as musicians tend to, they'll pick up instruments and, and sing and play. And so they turned the tapes on, they recorded them singing and her harmonizing and them playing and blah, blah, blah. And so then, it got dropped. It didn't make the album. And Southern Accents was this weird album where Dave Stewart comes in and records a bunch of stuff. And it's this mishmash. But then Apartment Song does get picked up and redone for Full Moon Fever because Jeff Lynn says, have you got anything laying around? And Tom says, well, this one. Jeff says, absolutely. This is great. We should do it. But the funny thing about this one is that the only thing that we think survives from that original sort of session is the two vocals and the guitar because it was released on an album called Playback. And I Really sure that was 1990. Oh, I got to look it up, Randy. It was late 90s, uh, 95, sorry. So they released this box set of all the, you know, B-sides and outtakes and everything else. So this one was actually sort of finished and recorded then. So the drums and the bass, mm. and I think some probably some overdubs on guitar and stuff was recorded then, but you still get this sense of what the song would have been. And, and it sounds so good, especially Stevie singing harmony but totally different at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it's slower and it's it's swung yeah. and uh swung way more obviously. Yeah. And uh, but but just on that first few bars you played, it definitely it doesn't have the same uh you know. It's country versus rock and roll, which is yeah, I, mean, I know that's a really, fine line, but really it's really loose and doesn't sound yeah. as uh, as as together as as the, as the as the current version. It also doesn't have the 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 kicker in the song, which to me is that Peggy Sue drum break. Oh, you like the, just you like that, eh? Oh, it just delights me, Randy. Every yeah. time I listen to it, my uh, my little notes were I had just said, well, first of all, I mean, clearly it's just a super catchy tune because you're yeah, you'd be singing it as soon as you hear it. Uh, and and my notes were I love the uh, the piano and uh, and the the coming out of your your bridge you like there's so much uh bands playing uh some really low rumbling piano as it comes back in yeah That's super great super great idea super great thing to do uh and and the snare sound is outstanding i, I don't know if it's a program snare sound or what but it's nice and up front and it sounds just so nice yeah. and tight it's just sitting right there going crack, crack. <laughs> yeah great great song played played it a hundred times and just so you think about the context of Full Moon Fever, and like I said, in Full Moon Fe- the, the recordings for Full Moon Fever were sort of broken up by the recording of the Traveling Wilburys album. And you just get that sort of, that same loose, relaxed 
making music just for the love of it, not to get a hit record. That's what that's this song is to me is just a musician writing a song for the pure love of it. And it's again, it's a song that just makes me happy every time I hear it. As soon as it clicks in, it's like, yeah, I'm, no, I'm, it doesn't matter what's happening in my life. I'm happy now because I'm listening to this song. I wonder why they didn't bring the goat back in to sing the backup vocal. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it could have just been she, maybe she was out on tour with the fleet with Mac. Yeah, maybe it just was you know people were just cost, not around at the time. So cost too much. I don't know. Who knows? Stevie wouldn't have charged Tom. She was. I mean, she was. She always. She said that the Heartbreakers were the only band she would have. And she was serious when she said it. She would have left Fleetwood Mac to be the backup singer in the Heartbreakers. Is how much she loved Tom's music. So you know. Well, there you go. Yeah. But man, yeah, that, I mean, that Peggy Sue drum break is just like, again, I learned, you know, at, doing the, the, that episode on the apartment song that, I mean, there's no bloody way in hell I could play it, but that's a paradiddle. And Peggy Sue, anyway, I don't necessarily, I don't know whether it is in the apartment song, but when the, when the crickets um, drummer plays, it's a paradiddle and that is fast, man. Mm-hmm. To play a paradiddle like that, that fast and for that long is crazy. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, cool. It's, it's a cool, it's a cool bit. It's a cool song. Oh, it's so good, man. You need those little bits in songs, eh, where you just think, oh, I wasn't expecting that. That's cool. And when, you know, it's a very, very short song, which mm-hmm. I, I always tend to like a good short song. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it had only been, it only been about two minutes and 10 seconds if they wouldn't add that part in. <laughs> but I think it would lose so much if they didn't, though. Because to me, that's the thing that sort of elevates it from being a good song to a great song. Because it's that little bit of unexpected extra sauce that you can throw in that you don't need a guitar solo, and I will just put this drum break, and it's only eight bars. Yeah, right. It's just it, play it through the, the chord progression through twice with that beat under underneath it, but it adds so much to it. It just gives it that different sort of dynamic to it. I just I think it's just it gives somewhere to go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you always tell me when I write songs, Randy. Songs should go somewhere. That's right. <laughs> Okay, so we skip into the Great Wide Open. We talked about that. So Jeff Lynn comes in and produces Full Moon Fever, and then he sticks around and he records um, into the Great Wide Open with the band, which caused a lot of friction because not everyone really wanted to be working with Jeff Lynn and Stan Lynch, the drummer especially. That was sort of the, the catalyst. The Full Moon Fever and into Great Wide Open was the catalyst for him leaving the band on Wildflowers and in that session. So, so we'll, we end up we skip that song and we go to Wildflowers, and I gave you. Crawling back to you now. We we talked. You just literally just said there that you do like a short song, and I know we've talked about that on the the Queen podcast, and we've had disagreements about the length of songs and whether it's necessary. This one's quite a long song. Um, it's five oh five. Um, it's a Tom Petty solo ride, and the Wildflowers again is a solo album produced by Rick by Rick Rubin. The first thing I wanted to ask you about is the production on this. What did you think of the production on this song? Yeah, so I think in in terms of production, uh, it it well. So first of all, it's it's a great sounding album. It really sounds a lot more intimate in a lot of ways. I don't know if you notice how dry the drums sound. Yeah, quite dry. And then also Tom is quite his vocals quite dry and very present. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a ton of notes on this one. I I had said that I thought I thought the uh, the intro was extremely cool. Yeah, I really liked I really liked that little synthy 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 bit. Uh, and I, I think it's a really really great song. Uh, you know. I'm not exactly sure what uh what the what what the significance of the having an Indian shoot the lights out is right. in in the song. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's just sort of a I think it's one of those vignettes, let's call it, that Tom some would sometimes would throw into a song where you just get this 
this flash of an image. It's almost like, a, you know, if you think about it, when you're watching a movie and you get that sort of flashback to just one sort of incident, I don't know whether it really narratively fits a lot of it, but it was, it was me and my sidekick. He was drunk and I was sick. We were caught up in a barroom fight until an Indian shot out the lights. I don't think I don't think the Indian is necessarily I don't know that well, relevant the, or important. But I think the second the verse of it was, is right. The second verse is the ranger came with burning eyes. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure if they're talking Wild West or 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 what. So could be, I, yeah. I just wasn't sure about that. But but yeah. But yeah. Basically, yes. I think it's a, re- a really great sounding. Really great sounding album. It's it's like they've really uh, it, it's it's like they've really sort of come into their sort of their own. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. It's it's Tom Petty doing what Tom Petty does, and at probably at, at 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 some some level of 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 height. And it was his creative zenith. Like this was a period where he wrote basically sort of three albums worth of material in about two two and a half years, more or less. And, you know, Wildflowers is 15 songs. It was originally going to be a double album at 25, and they pared it down. And I think, I probably, I think it was the right decision. And I'm glad we got the box set and all, we, we did get all the rest of those songs that weren't included. And they're great. You know, there's like, they're better than 95% of most of their artists' greatest hits that I've heard. Um, but keeping it nice and tight and keeping the 15 songs they, they chose was the right decision. And again, this is this another song where it's got one of the lyrics in it that all Tom Petty fans reference. Steve Ferroni, the drummer, the new guy who ended up coming in and playing drums on this album, has a tattoo of it. And it says, I'm so tired of being tired, sure as night will follow day. Most things I worry about never happen anyway. Yeah. And again, it's that it's just that knack to sort of tap into those. We talked about it the other day on, I think on the on the Queen Pod, the Universal truths, right? It's that thing of mm. everyone can relate to that. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's just that it taps into your nerve and it's just, I, again, at five minutes and three seconds, I think this song is one of those that doesn't drag. Yeah. Could you pare it down? Sure you could. And mm-hmm. I don't think you'd lose that much. I think it would still be okay. But I think because of the way it flows and the way it sounds always to me, I could listen to this for like, you know, if they jammed this yeah. out for 10 minutes in concert, I'd listen to it and love all 10 minutes, you know? Yeah, it didn't, it didn't feel too long to me. And, and as I had noted earlier, whatever, the other song, something big did. And it's only just slightly right. shorter than this one. So, yeah. so yeah, it's just, it just it really depends on the song. Uh, I was going to say that that lyric reminds me very much of the, of the lyric, um, uh, got a kick at the darkness till, he, till it bleeds daylight by uh, 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 Bruce Coburn. There we go. There you go. So yeah, the that line reminds me of the Bruce Coburn line. Yeah. You got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. It's just yeah. uh it's just something that just it just whoa, it, it's just like it, it you can see it, right? You can yeah. see it in your mind's eye and and ha- and being able to write lyrics like that's obviously uh, a a real a real talent, right? Definitely. And there's also in this song the piano part that Ben Mont plays and we again we're going to talk about this on, you know what, folks, tune in um, on Thursday to the Seaside Pod Review because we're going to talk about the show that Randy and I went to last night. I think probably a little bit more on that one. But we were talking about, or I'd leaned over to you at one point and said that a piano player can make the piano sound like two different instruments depending on exactly how they play it. And Benmont plays this so delicately that it's not, it's not a rip-roaring ragtime, you know, stride thing that Benmont can do as well. This is so beautiful and sort of in the back and if we went to watch together me and you went to watch the wildflowers documentary 
And I remember this song where Ben Mont was playing a lot more in this song. And he was playing like big, fat, full chords. But when you pair it down to what he's playing here, it's just, it's exactly what the song has to be. And that's what yeah. I love about the Heartbreakers. And we always talk about, you got to play to the song, man. It can't be about you and your ego. You got to play what the song needs, not what you want to play, you know? And, and generally, simple is going to be better. Yeah. And then you <laughs> razzle dazzle them at the concert, right? <laughs> that's what it's all about. Okay, so we're skipping three albums now. We're skipping She's the One, um, which is songs and music from She's the One, which was a movie, um, but still not really a soundtrack album, a little bit of one, but not really. Um, Echo, we miss, and The Last DJ, and I'm skipping you on to the next solo album, um, Highway Companion, released in 2006. Um, again, it's the 14th overall, and it was produced by Jeff Lynne, and the song is Saving Grace. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I wanted to just throw a little, a little uh, word at you, a little two words at you. LaGrange. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, they don't have a patent on... Uh, no, and they, they, <laughs> you know? they, they stole it from other people. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they don't. Um, but so, yeah, uh, so uh, Saving Grace, yeah. So uh, my little notes were... Uh, so I thought I thought the uh, the guitar tones were great, and I do, do believe, I think I'm specifically... Uh, Thinking of when Mike's guitar comes in, yeah, he's just got that. I'm not, I forget what he's playing. I, there's a video, but looks like maybe a 335 or something like that. Okay, uh, sounds so great. Uh, and I really enjoyed the uh, the riff in the in the bridge or or it, it, the breakdown. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just a turnaround or whatever. Uh, I thought that was uh, was really cool. And I didn't know that this was so. I didn't know these were all in 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 chronological order. So yeah, uh, although I guess I could tell he looked older. But uh, yeah, it doesn't sound like a, it doesn't sound like an old Tom Petty song to me. It sounds like it could be, or a, a cur a newer one. I'm what I'm trying yeah. to say. Sounds like it could be from an older album or something. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed it actually. So I wanted to just give you again some context here that there are only three musicians on this entire album, and it's the only album in Tom's catalog with you know solo with the Heartbreakers with Mudcrutch where. He's the only songwriter credited on every song. So you got Mike Campbell plays all the guitars, obviously. Um, well, not all the guitars. Tom and, and Jeff also play guitars, but he all plays all the lead. Um, you got Jeff Lynn playing bass, obviously. Um, I think Tom actually plays a little bit of bass on a couple of tracks, sharing keyboard duties. But Tom Petty played ba- uh, drums on this song. Oh, did he? Nice. So I didn't know if that was which. Again, I thought it's a really cool little drum. You get that little sort of. You know, the playing on the the rim or the playing on the hat stand or whatever it might be, that little that clicky thing at the beginning mm-hmm. just sounds super, yeah. super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cool tune. And a good yeah, a good swing, eh? Like it's a good blues rock song. It's a proper sort of southern swampy, you know. Yeah. But again, not to let you off the hook about lyrics, Randy, which you don't listen to because you're uh, just a you know, a Philistine. And it's hard to say who you are these days, but you run on anyway, don't you, baby? It's almost a continuation of calling back to you where you say, you know, it's that, it's that idea. And like you said with uh, Bruce Colburn's lyric, it's just, just keep, keep your feet moving. Just keep pushing forward. You know, it, it, things might be tough, but just, just keep going. They'll, they'll, they'll get better, you know, or, or yeah. at least they might get better. You know, you can't just don't give up. And it's got that same through line through the song. Yeah. And man, it's a great, again, I, I mean, I love LaGrange and this isn't LaGrange. It's definitely a little bit different, a different oh, enough. Yeah. And it's got, a, it's got smells of green onions in there as well. It's that same kind of, that mm. same kind of groove. It's just, it's so infectious. You love listening to it, right? 
Yeah, well, Tom, you can tell Tom, he uh, a lot of the stuff he... You could tell what he listened to and where he was drawing some inspirations. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Okay. So, I'm sorry. And so, with Highway Companion is a funny one because, like I said, Tom wrote all the songs and there's only three musicians on the record. And Jeff Lynne's production on this one is a bit different. It's not, it doesn't sound like Full Moon Fever. It doesn't sound like Insta Great Wide Open. It's got more of a, especially on things like this and Two Gunslingers, and there's a few songs in this record where it sounds a bit more like a band kind of playing live, which definitely it isn't, you know, because obviously mm -hmm. Tom has to play drums and he has to play guitar and this thing. So the, it, it isn't, which we'll get into in the next song is interesting, but I think that had Jeff tried to sort of put the same production aesthetic on this, I don't think it would have worked. And I think that's where, if, if anyone's going to sort of argue to me about Jeff Lynne being a bit one speed and only having been a bit of a one trick pony, I just think, yeah, no. He, he, he produced songs the way that songs need to be produced. It's a good example of, well, let's capture this, this, yeah, this swampy southern rocker. Yeah. So he's okay, a two trick so pony. Go, oh, sorry. So he's a two trick pony, is what you're trying to say. A two trick pony, at least two tricks. We haven't established all the other tricks, so let's not rule them out, but at least nope. two tricks. Nope, and I bet you he's from a town with more than one horse. Well, he's from Birmingham. That's why <laughs> Jeff Lynn talks like he's had a bit of a stroke and he doesn't, you know, doesn't sound very intelligent, but that's what people from Birmingham sound like, you know. And he's, and he's lived in LA a little bit, so he's got a few of the, you know, he doesn't say T anymore. He puts the D in there, but it's Jeff Lynn, you know. <laughs> I love Jeff Lynn so much. <laughs> okay, so we skip forward to, so in between... Um, Highway Companion, which Seven Grace is from, and the next song, Tom Petty reforms his first band, or very first band, but his first sort of real band, Mudcrutch, and decides that, you know, I've got this career where I can fill out, I can, you know, he's, he's playing 35,000 seaters and, and 50,000 and, and then some 12,000 arenas, and he's, he's a big rock star, but decides, I'm going to, I want to go back and play like 1,200, 1,500 seater venues with my friends, which I was talking to John Paulson about this and said, not only did he not need to do it, but probably it actually wasn't a great financial decision because it would have diluted and mm -hmm. detracted from what he was doing to Heartbreakers. But it's the sign of the man that he just wanted to play music for the love of playing it with his friends. And I think that's just super cool. And I can't think of anyone offhand who's ever done that at this stage in their career to go back, reform a band that they had in the early 70s and go out and play. And they never played a single Heartbreaker song. You know, they didn't say, oh, we'll, you know, we'll do a bunch of Mud Crutch songs, but we'll, we'll put Free Fall in because everyone will love that. And no, they, right. they were Mud Crutch. They were a different band. They did their own thing. So we skip um, Mud Crutch, which is the first that, that debut album. And we get to Mojo, which was released in 2010. Um, it's the penultimate album that the Heartbreakers released, and it's produced by Ryan Oliari. And I'm, I want to say another thing I want to get your thoughts on this before I give you some of the background on it. What do you think of this one, Randy? And so we're talking about Jefferson Jericho Blues. Jefferson Jericho Blues. Uh, well, yeah, it wasn't my favorite song. So okay. I, I I found the harmonica. A, a, it's a little bit. It's a little bit like stepping on the cat's tail. Okay. Uh, and it, that 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 part is just it's just a bit repetitive and just doesn't hit my ear. Nice. Uh, okay. I find it's just a bit lame and, and a touch a touch wanky. Wow. 
Okay, yeah. well, I mean, I was expecting a hot take. I wasn't. I wasn't expecting this one to be it. To be honest with you, no, hey. Well, there you go. But production-wise, sort of, you know, playing. And obviously, oh, yeah. if you like the song, it, it you all, don't like the song. Yeah, it all sounds. Fine. It all sounds yeah. good. It's all, you know, it's all recorded nicely, and 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 it just, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah. I, I just, I just found it a, a, a touch lame. Okay, interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So you know, you know Thomas Jefferson, though the uh, the ex-US president who, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll give you some background anyway because I think sure. it is worth worth talking about a little bit. And again, again, as a producer and as a you know a recording musician, this one basically, this whole album was recorded essentially live off the floor, and they did it in the with it's the clubhouse, so that's their their practice space in LA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, instead of going to a studio, let's just record it here where we're very relaxed. And they basically said, okay, well, let's learn the songs as we were talking about earlier, to a degree that we can just play them live and record them. Yeah. You know, we won't, we don't even necessarily need a ton of, you know, dividers and things to, because if, we, if we're good enough, we, the bleed over between the parts will be manageable. It'll be fine. And mm-hmm. so that's what they did. So there's, there's probably, I think I read about, there's about three songs on this album that have got overdubs. Right. And this isn't one of them. And so you've got a band here that is playing. This is, this is a band that's playing this live. Now, this isn't necessarily the best example of wow, really they played that live because it's essentially it's twelve bar blues. Yeah, it is right. Yeah. But yeah. you know, it's it's pretty standard. There's nothing super exciting. I think it's super cool, and I love the harmonica. So you're wrong on that one, running. That's okay. We we've established that you're wrong sometimes, and you know, yeah, yeah. Um, but I just think that that to to go back to in 2010 on your second last album, Tom Petty doesn't need to prove anything to anyone at this point. He certainly doesn't need to. I mean, he's, and he's got you know more than enough money that he can hire out. I mean, name the most expensive studio in the world and the best producer, and Tom Petty can get him in a heartbeat, right? But he gets Ryan Oliadi in, who had helped out, I think, with playback, and this is not like a big name producer, and they just want to do this low key blues album off the floor in their clubhouse. I just think that's insanely cool. I think that's very, very cool yeah. at that stage in a in a, in a in a musician's career to just say, "Nah, fuck it, we're going to do something that we want to do." Yeah, you know, yeah, it, yeah, it is cool. Yeah, very cool. I, I love I love all of the idea around what everything you just said. You just don't like the song. <laughs> well, it's just like I said. It's just I I don't know. I probably maybe I've spent more time in blues clubs than you have. <laughs> hey, no, hey, look, and this is so. And listeners, like I said to Randy, sort of offline, that this isn't a love fest. I mean, Scott Askins comments that the last guy who did the Petty Eight thing with, and this is why I go to people who aren't catalog fans because you do want that sort of take on. I love this, but maybe I'm just really, really close to it. And he said that, yeah. like, his comment was, he doesn't always love Tom's voice, which to me was like, what are you talking about? Well, he does. Like, what are you even talking he about? Gets a little, he, gets, he gets a little rangy sometimes. He does, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. But no, that's cool, man. I mean, if it's not your, if it's not your song, and you've articulated why, and I understand, I just don't agree with you. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And that's, that's we, we, me and you have this all the time about music. I know. Mm-hmm. I know. This is crazy. It's like you're a Republican or something. <laughs> okay, well, let's skip forward in time then to the very last album that Tom Petty puts out with the Heartbreakers. Um, Hypnotic Eye is the album. It was released in 2014. Um, again, produced by Ryan Oliardi, not in the clubhouse. Um, and I think the one thing that we would, most people sort of talk about with this album is that it's got a very, almost sort of a garage band sort of aesthetic to it where it's recorded. It, it sounds quite... Sh- gritty 
and dirty and it's not massively polished and overproduced and you've got that sort of really buzzsaw kind of guitar tone from mike and this very sort of abrasive riff what did you think of this one randy yeah so yeah fault lines uh so so I really dig the bass line. I think it's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 I mean, I really like the the ride part. It sounds like an old, uh, sounds like an old sixties, uh, an old sixties sort of a, a, a kind of arrangement. Do you know it's what I mean? It's a bossa nova, is what it is. Which is yeah. insane to put that in a rock song to me. But anyway, yeah. Um, and and, and so so there are bits I like. I actually did actually pay attention to some of the lyrics here. I I, I like the I like the uh, I like where he's going going with yeah. it. But but I find the song itself just a little, it's a little, it's just okay. You know what I mean? Okay. I, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't, my exact words were, it doesn't get me all fired up. <laughs> but, but, I, but I don't hate it. Yeah. And I don't think it's the worst thing that's ever happened. And, and it, and it sounds, <laughs> it sounds wonderful. Yeah. I like, I like the wah guitar and, and, and all the, all the nice little noodly bits. Uh. But yeah, so maybe in this particular case, it might be just more of a, a song thing. Was this the one you said they recorded? They recorded this live? No, that oh. was the last one. That was yeah, the last was one. Last Not one, this yeah. one. Okay. So uh, yeah, and so I'm going to assume that you think it's the best thing that's ever happened to you. Oh my, it's one of my yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite. Well, I mean, I think for specific reasons, like I said, I, as a drummer, I love what Seferoni does in this song, and I think it's recorded really, really well. Like it's so crisp. Mm -hmm. And the, oh, yeah, the, like the separation, you can hear everything everyone's playing. Ron Blair's bass line in this is so beefy and it's brought up so far in the mix that it's like, man, that's how you record bass. Like, come on, I want to hear more of that now. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it rips along. Um, and there's a lyric in this that I, again, I mean, on, a, on the high wire, above the wildfire, an old acrobat, on faulty cable, still he's able not to fall flat. Oh, sorry. Still he's able not to fall flat. I just think that's so, again, it's that, you know, some songwriters have that ability to really sort of paint a, a very specific picture in your mind. And that one's like a, a, an acrobat on a, on a high wire above a wildfire is such a very specific image. You sort of think, where the fuck does that come from? Like, because no one's ever seen that. No one's ever done that. Mm -hmm. But there's no doubt in your mind that it's like this dangerous situation where mm -hmm. don't put a foot wrong, buddy, because, you know, you've got these fault lines running through your, running under your life. And yeah, I just, I just think it's, it's wonderful, Randy. I love it. All right, well, okay, we've been through the eight songs. Um, like I said, I think the one that surprised me most was Jer Jefferson Jer Jericho Blues. I thought mm. as, a, as a bit of a blues sound, I thought you might like that one. I totally understand where you're coming from with it. Um, but let's talk about, so the, I, I asked you to pick three songs to form an EP. Yeah. And then one to pick off the list, and I think I know which one it's going to be, um, for the next yeah. person, just the Petty Eight. So what's your EP, Randy? So uh, it's the apartment song. Crawling back to you and saving grace. That's what I picked, and yeah, you know which one I'm. I'm dusting. <laughs> Wrong podcast. Hey man, it works though. So Jeff Jefferson Jericho Blues is gone, folks. Am I going to be getting nasty emails? Oh, you know. Am I going to get called out on Twitter? Maybe. No. I hope so. Well, here, Randy, what I'm going to do just before we sort of start wrapping up, are the are the petty the petty heads are much more civilized they. Well, my petty heads are. The people who listen to my podcast tend to be nice people. Um, but I want to play you the song because I've, I've got sort of it in my mind. I always know, okay, if someone picks this song, this is the one I'm going to replace it with. So I wanted to play you a little bit of the song that I'm going to replace 
uh, Jefferson Jericho Blues with, just to see what you think. Yeah. And again, it's a very, I don't know, it's 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 a a specific kind of sound, mm-hmm. but I just I just dig it hard. So I'll play a little bit of it here. I mean, again, just a sort of a twelve-bar country blues jam. Yeah, but Mike's tone is so good. Yeah, it's yeah. got that like super sixties telly kind of thing. I just love it. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that sounds like a cool tune. Okay, so there we go, folks. Um, the apartment song, "Crawling Back to You" and "Saving Grace," make Randy's EP, and Jefferson Jericho Blues is gone. I'm stunned. I'm stunned, Randy. You, you've again, you've profit songed me. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong podcast. <laughs> well hey man i just all i have is my opinion and i'm willing to share it with anybody who will listen but uh just before you do your little sign off kev mm-hmm. thanks uh, so much for having me on and uh, uh accommodating me as a non petty head i think when you extended this uh offer uh however long ago when you started this you didn't really know exactly how this is all going to work out so so yeah thanks for having me on Okay, well, Randy, where can people find you? For goodness sake, like if people want to check out, and as they really, really should, your music, um, any other podcast ventures maybe that you have going on, where can people find you? Uh, well, so uh, all of my music is on Spotify or absolutely anywhere you get music. And that's uh, the Randy Woods Band or my previous band, the, uh, I was going to say the, uh, my previous band, Absofunkin'Lutely, also all on, uh, on every major platform. Uh, and I do believe I still own randywoodsband.com if you want to just check out some of that stuff and all the Facebooks. And I also host a little podcast with a guy you might be familiar with. His name is Kevin Brown. Uh, and it's called Seaside Pod Review. And we talk about Queen just so long, you just won't even, <laughs> you'll, you'll be like, oh my God, will these guys ever stop talking about Queen? But then you folks are all used to listening to Kevin talk about Tom Petty for ad nauseum. So it's like that, except different, and and I suspect, you know, better. <laughs> and on that podcast, we what? swear a lot more than I do on this. What one. an asshole! Just derailing your proper <laughs> podcast here. They're very different things. They're very, very, very different things for very different reasons. And I, I would say though, Randy, that the reason that I wanted you to be on this podcast is because, as I've always said to you, and you always sort of slough off that. I love your insights on any sort of music because you have a different perspective than I do. Certainly you come at things from a different angle. You've got different interests. And so you're and your ear is so much broader than mine because you listen to so much more than I do. And so being able to talk to you about an artist that I love knowing that I'm safe because you're my friend and you won't just, you're not going to turn and say, well, that's dog shit. That needs to, <laughs> that needs never to have happened. And I want to set fire to it. You'll always tell me, don't like this i don't like that and that's the reason so we because you, know, you know that's it's, it's, it's the awful thing about social media is well this sucks okay well that's yeah. a great opinion but why what do you mean it sucks or what sucks about it yeah yeah because music is Those... an artist subjective and you should be able to articulate why you don't like something which you always do very very well oh well thank you thanks for that thanks for that i appreciate that Kev. okay but you know because uh randy didn't like jefferson jericho blues definitely don't check out any of his music don't, don't support <laughs> I kid, of course. Seriously, folks, um, go check out um, Randy's last two albums, uh, Randy Woods' band um, debut, eponymous album, and Soul Hammer. Um, there's yes. some fantastic cuts on there, and I know you'll love them. So until we meet again next week, just keep being awesome to each other. And then I think next week I'm talking about the first track from uh, Integrate Wide Open, Learning to Fly. 
But in the meantime, on Friday this week, you're going to get a bonus episode where I'm talking about one of Randy's songs in oh some depth. Word. I'm going to be pulling it apart like I do with Tom Petty. So prepare, my friend. I'm going to have questions. My word. <laughs>